0: Again, we're looking at Matthew 13 today, which is uh, the same chapter we were in last week. And actually, there's a definite symmetry between our theme in worship last week when we were looking at counterfeits. Remember, Jesus doesn't just teach that there's going to be believers and non-believers. He teaches that there's going to be believers and counterfeit believers, which is a little bit more startling, I think, for the church to hear. But he says there's going to be counterfeit gospels and counterfeit believers and uh, counterfeit churches and counterfeit righteousness and actually, even in the end times, an antichrist christ they counterfeit Christ and Christs. A very similar lesson is being taught here in our first lesson. And what I'm going to preach on today is actually the verses right before this. And those verses, two short parables, are nestled between the idea of teaching of counterfeits. Today, it's not wheat and weeds like it was last week, it's catches of fish, That he makes a distinction in. Matthew 13 beginning with verse 47, once again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore and then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets but they threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. And throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this, all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This is God's word. Our teaching today comes from Matthew 13. Just two really, actually, brief parables. In Matthew 13, 44 through 46, we're looking at the parable, or actually maybe more properly, the parables of hidden treasure. And here Jesus teaches, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is God's word. And this is the second week that we're looking at Jesus' teaching of parables. And today we have two actually of the shortest parables that you're ever going to find uh, given back to back. And the same formula is used in these parables that's really used in all of Jesus' parables, which is to say they start out by saying, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now that kind of begs the question what is the kingdom of heaven? Like, you can say the kingdom of heaven is, but what is the kingdom of heaven? And for that matter, how is it like excavating a field or sowing seeds or reaping a harvest or or any of those things? You and I tend to associate heaven with just something like paradise. And that's true because maybe one of the best definitions of heaven is it is the eternal blessing of being in the presence, like intimate presence with God. However, when you say the kingdom of heaven You're implying something else. When you say the kingdom of heaven, it implies a rule. And a rule is a place, a kingdom is a place, where a king properly operates dominion over his subjects. This is one of the reasons why the Bible can describe in heaven, for instance, in Revelation. The apostle John can see heaven coming down in Revelation 21. See, a geographic location can't, by definition, change locations, but a culture can change a location. A culture can spread. A rule can spread. And what's going to happen on the last day in a new Jerusalem after Judgment Day is every heart is going to properly submit to the design of our designer. And Jesus is teaching us in these parables what it would look like if all humanity actually did, in fact, bow to our designer. He also teaches what would happen and what happens if you don't. Now, the first of the two parables today is a parable of a guy finding treasure hidden in a field. And really, any time in the Bible where you hear the exact same teaching spoken with slightly different words back to back, um, it means Jesus is trying to emphasize a point. He's saying the exact same thing from slightly different angles. It's for point of emphasis. There's an aspect to the kingdom. There's an aspect of Christ's rule that is inherently hidden from mankind, that's the similarity. So, the first parable, the guy is stumbles across buried treasure in a field. That sounds a little piratey and weird to us, buried treasure. The only thing I can think of nowadays is like that dude at the beach with the metal detector who's like, and it's like, oh man, there's just no, like you can spend, I've never once seen a guy find anything of significant value uh, with the metal detector, the metal detector on the beach guy. Uh, Actually, somebody texted me right after the first service today and sent me an article from CNN that something extraordinarily valuable was found with a metal detector by a historian in Europe. So, I guess it does happen. I've just never seen it happen when I was at the beach. My point is, in those days, it actually happened a lot more and you know why? Because in ancient times, money was less a commodity and more a simple means of transaction of actual commodities. In fact, this is still sort of an interesting debate in economic theory today. For instance, like the fiasco of cryptocurrency in the past couple of years. Like, do you have to have, for instance, like Federal Reserve backing up a certain amount of like value in something? Economic theory is more complex than it seems like it should be. But my point is, today we look at money sort of as a commodity that we just store up, for instance, in a bank somewhere, or even digitally somewhere. But in ancient times, money was a means for transaction. And therefore, in ancient times, if you were really wealthy, a diversified portfolio might look something like this. You might take, for instance, a third of your wealth and carry it on your person to do your business transactions. Take a third of your wealth, put it in precious stones and metals and jewels and keep that semi-protected in your home. And then you know what you do with the last third of your wealth? You would go and you would bury it in a non-disclosed location where nobody else knew where it was. And the reason for that is because in ancient times, when you have a lot less uh, policing, for instance, than you typically have today, things like burglary rates and simply just robbing someone was so much uh, more regular. And uh, therefore, if you were robbed, to ensure that you didn't go penniless, you would take a chunk of your change and make sure nobody else on the planet knew where it was. And what that means then is it's not all that odd because at that time, not only do you have robbery being higher but you, and murder being higher, but you also have things like worse healthcare and people just die faster in the ancient world, typically. So, if you have a wealthy guy who goes out on a business trip, the guarantee that he's going to return from his business trip is not quite as high as what it would be today. What happens to the buried treasure once that guy dies? it's just sitting there. Somebody's going to find it. And the idea of somebody working a field and locating a treasure and saying, ah, oh yes, this is mine. And then the peasant, by the way, and we know he's a peasant probably because he's working in a field. Uh, Typically, we don't think of, especially in ancient times, wealthy people working uh, the ground like this. So this guy's probably a peasant. He stumbles upon this treasure And he goes and he liquidates every asset he owns with a tremendous amount of joy in order to purchase this field. See, uh, again, finding buried treasures in ancient times wasn't that uncommon. Jewish laws actually had finders-keepers legislation, where if you found something unoccupied, it belongs to you. By the time of Roman occupation, it got a little different. You at least had to own the land, which is why this guy goes and he purchases The land. He doesn't just take what he finds, he goes and he purchases the land so that anybody who brings any charges that this legally doesn't belong to him, he's like, no, I have the deed to the land, right? He's willing to sell absolutely everything because he knows nothing in his life is more valuable than the treasure that he's found. That's the buried treasure parable. The second one is actually a lot like it, it just uses a different circumstance. The second parable is a a merchant, a pearl merchant, Now, you see, there's there's differences in these stories, therefore, because whereas the first guy was poor, this guy, as a pearl merchant, if you buy and sell really expensive stuff, usually, you have a little bit of money yourself, right? So the first guy's probably poor, the second guy's probably wealthy. The first guy stumbles across the treasure that is buried, the second guy, he's out wheeling and dealing business-wise. He's out looking for good deals. He's a pearl merchant. And what that tells us, when we get to understanding this spiritually, too, people in all walks of life can find the treasure that is offered to them. Sometimes they stumble upon it and they weren't even looking for it. Other times, there's what we might call seekers. Uh, But this guy, like the first, he goes and he liquidates all his assets because he has a trained eye and he sees something that the untrained eye cannot see as a pearl merchant. And he recognizes he's never seen anything on earth more exquisite than this particular jewel. And he sells everything he has and he purchases, to, uh, he acquires the jewel. So again, what's the difference and what's the similarity? One guy's poor, one guy's wealthy. One guy stumbles upon the treasure, one guy is out looking for treasure. But the similarity between the two is both of these guys have seen something that everybody else just doesn't seem to see and both of these guys are willing to get rid of everything else in their life because what they've found is so valuable, so precious. There's nothing in this world combined that could possibly compare to its value. Okay? So what does it all mean? Well, the parable of the buried treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price, same basic concept. They are metaphors for the kingdom of God, and specifically they're metaphors for the person of Jesus Christ. There is nothing on earth more valuable, there is not a single thing in this world that isn't worth sacrificing in order to receive Jesus Christ. In fact, the first parable, did you catch what it said? This guy, in his joy, he wasn't just like reluctantly willing to go and sell everything that he had, but he knows the value of what's before him and in his joy, he goes and sells all his other stuff That's interesting. To the degree that you recognize the goodness of Jesus and the eternal prosperity and pleasure that is entailed in the salvation that he gives to you, you will go with joy and let go and sacrifice any other thing in this world. You'll be willing to. By the way, another similarity, they both sell everything. And what that tells us is Christianity is an all or nothing proposition. You cannot have one foot in and one foot out. One foot in and one foot out means you're out, see? And another similarity in both of these guys, so again, you have the meaning of the hidden value attached to the kingdom, you have that guys are willing to sell everything they have and even joyfully in order to receive it. And another really interesting thing about this is the specific order. It's joy and then it's sacrifice. Do you catch that? It's treasure and then sacrifice. The order is really important because every other world religion works the exact opposite direction. Every other world religion is you make certain sacrifices and then maybe you'll receive salvation. You go on your pilgrimages, you do your good deeds, you say your correct prayers and then maybe only then will God love, accept and bless you. Christianity works the exact opposite direction. Jesus has already died for the sins of the entire world. God has already chosen to make you his own. He already loves, accepts, and blesses you in Christ. He already gifts you treasure. And then and only then, any deeds and any sacrifices that flow out of that are simply for gratitude. Right? It's the order of the gospel. It's different from every, it's the way, different from the instincts of the human heart. It's different from the way this world operates. It's different from man-made religion. There's also a couple clarifications that I need to make. Uh, on this text, though, because anytime you study parables, it's really easy in some respects to contort what the parable says, not just to fit what you want it to say, but to interpret it in a way that might potentially violate other teachings of Scripture or violate other things that Jesus himself teaches. So, for instance, you know what Jesus isn't teaching? He is not teaching that the treasure of heaven is found primarily by your seeking. How do I know that? Because the rest of the Bible says those who experience salvation are predestined by God, they are called by God, they are found by God, they are redeemed by God. Salvation is entirely God's work, not our seeking, not the product of our seeking. A second thing this parable is not teaching is that you and I can somehow purchase salvation by way of the sacrifices that we make, right? Uh, Salvation is purchased entirely by Jesus' generous payment that was made on the cross. A third thing this parable is not teaching is business ethics. You know, this might be the easiest one but at first glance, you look at like, for instance, the merchant, the pearl merchant and the fact that he can see that this pearl is worth like a billion dollars and he buys it from this chump for like a thousand dollars, you say like, wouldn't the Christ like thing to do with your trained eye would be to say, ah, that thing that you've got price marked as a thousand dollars is actually worth like a billion? That probably would have been the right thing to do but this parable isn't teaching you business ethics, right? Oh, there's other spots in the Bible that teach business ethics, this ain't it. So you got to be very careful if that's not what it's teaching. It's a little bit like, um, for back in high school, you might have been forced to study Moby Dick. If after you studied Moby Dick, you went out and you bought a boat and you went whale hunting and then you came home disappointed because you followed everything according to the book but you weren't able to capture a whale, I would say you missed the point of the story. Like, that's not at all what that's about. Is there whale hunting in it? Yeah, absolutely. Is that what it's about? No, not at all the point. So you gotta be very careful in interpreting parables. What is this story actually about? Two basic things. One, it's the value of the kingdom of heaven and how it is inherently hidden to our flesh. It is inherently hidden, the value of God's kingdom. We don't recognize it at first glance. The Spirit has to open our, our blind eyes to see the value of Jesus, the value of the kingdom, the value of eternal life. The second thing that is a clear point of it is the kingdom is worth leaving, it's worth forsaking, it's worth risking even the most valuable things that you might find in this world. That's the value of the kingdom. And those two points, as important as they are, they're not actually the gospel of the parable. You know what the gospel of this parable is? the obvious place that our minds tend to drift whenever we hear some of Jesus' teaching is, what does that mean I should do? So we jump to points like, okay, how much am I sacrificing? How much do I have to sacrifice? Do I have to sacrifice everything in order to enter into the kingdom? And we just said, our sacrifices don't actually cause the kingdom. Uh, There's this old preaching illustration, uh, a really helpful one, of just a light switch. A light switch, for instance, doesn't actually cause electricity. That would be a wrong way of describing it. Uh, There's other causes to electricity. A light switch is a medium by which you receive the benefits that electricity can produce. It's a medium by which you receive electricity's benefits. Faith is not the cause of your salvation. Faith and its accompanying works. Faith and its accompanying sacrifices. Faith and faithfulness. Faith is the way through which you receive the blessings of salvation that Jesus Christ won for us on the cross. See? Uh, But if you're going to interpret these parables correctly, you need to see them less in terms of primarily what you are supposed to do, more in terms of what Jesus Christ has already done for you. And this is a mistake people are, Christians, are constantly making on the parables. For instance, if we were to take, like, let's say maybe probably the most famous parable, the parable of a good Samaritan, I can't tell you how many Christians, when they hear that parable, and honestly, even sometimes ministers, when they teach the parable, uh, the first thing people hear when when they think about, their flesh thinks about when they hear the parable of the Good Samaritan is, which person am I? Am I the Levite and the priest who forsakes the guy who's dying alongside the road and scurries to the other side of the road and leaves in a hurry and doesn't have compassion? Or am I more like... The Good Samaritan, who at great cost to himself pours out tremendous amounts of wealth in order to resurrect the life on the side of the road. Which one are you? Which one am I? You know what the answer is? Neither. You're the guy dying alongside the road, incapable of rescuing himself. Jesus is the Good Samaritan, who at great cost to himself pours out all of his resources in order to resurrect you from death. Why is it that your instinct automatically jumps to, which am I, the, the priest or the good Samaritan? It's because the default position of every human heart is self-righteous, self-centered, self-justification. You can't escape it. If you're human, fallen human, the default position of your flesh and your heart is self-centered, self-justification. What that means is when we look at parables like this one, These two, actually, and we say, okay, well, what do I have to sacrifice or what should I be sacrificing or how much am I sacrificing or is God really going to ask me to sacrifice everything in my life? Like, there's a certain amount of pride required to assume that you could actually purchase your own salvation in the first place. There's a pride attached to thinking that you can earn your salvation. Jesus is not primarily teaching you about what you sacrifice. Jesus is primarily teaching you here what you mean to God. And as God's son, Jesus sees everything very clearly, clearer than you and I do, and he recognizes in you a value so significant that he was willing to go and sacrifice everything and sell everything. And by the way, he owned everything, so everything is everything in order to redeem your life from sin, death, and the power of the devil. And he didn't do it out of fear, and he didn't do it because he felt guilt, because he had no guilt, and he didn't do it out of simply obligatory respect to his father. You know why Jesus did it? The writer of the Hebrews tells us very clearly. He says, he did it for the joy set before him. Well, do you know what the joy set before him was? What did Jesus not own that he was willing to give everything in order to own? You are the joy set before him. You are his pearl of great price." I mean, my goodness, if you're looking for affirmation in life, when people feel worthless about themselves, let me remind you, you don't belong to you. You belong to him. If you're looking for affirmation, try not to forget that the God of the entire universe voluntarily became a peasant in a field and sold his life just so that he could have you. You don't really get to think of yourself as worthless. Because you don't belong to you, and objectively, God has proven you have value in Christ Jesus. You have been treasured and purchased by God with great joy. Now, what does this all mean? I got a couple quick application points to close us out here today. The first one is the kingdom of heaven is an all-or-nothing proposition. I already alluded to this, but I want to give it a, a minute here. In the parables, the peasant and the merchant sold all they had, all they had. Both of them. Very important point. At the beginning of the book of Revelation. John sees that one of the churches, God spits out because it's lukewarm, because it has one foot in and one foot out, right? It's an all-or-nothing proposition. But what does it mean to be half in and half out as as a Christian? I think the answer, using the verbiage of our text, is it means you're not willing to sell everything to follow Christ. Now, that's not merely about money, although it could be about money. Uh, In fact, there's a very clear example in the Gospels where it is exactly about money. There's a guy called the Rich Young Ruler and Jesus says, all you have to do to follow me, just go and sell all your stuff and come and follow me. He can't do it because he loves his money too much. So it could be about money but in general, the bigger point that Jesus is actually teaching here is it means that you want the blessings of attachment and personal relationship with Jesus Christ but you don't want to forsake the world, you know? Like, you want to marry God, but you want to hold on to the world as your mistress, and you just can't let her go. One of my favorite examples of this as a pastor, because I've had this conversation literally a thousand times, I think, uh, is when people say they believe the Bible, but there's certain portions of the Bible that they just can't quite get on board with. You know? And the portions that make me a little socially unpopular, perhaps, the portions that are inconvenient truths about my money and my sexuality, the portions that make me sound academically regressive in front of my peers of people and I look a little less intelligent to them, um, are those parts optional? Do I get to just choose which parts I think are actually authoritative for my life? And the question really then is, is Jesus the king Or is he kind of like a mentor who gives me some decent advice and I can sort of take it and leave it depending on how it applies to my life in that given moment? Does he get to judge me or do I get to judge him? See? Uh, I read something last summer that absolutely hit me. It's by a professor named Molly Worthen who is a historian at the University of North Carolina and she writes regular Uh, regularly about the intersection between culture and religion, especially as how it's related in American history. And she was writing an opinion article for the New York Times and she wrote this, neither total submission, she's talking about American people and their religion, neither total submission to a religious, traditional religious institution, nor atheistic materialism, neither one of those feels right to most Americans. Let me summarize what that means. Neither total submission to a traditional religious institution like Being a member of a church, nor atheistic materialism, self-identifying as a non-believer or an atheist. Most Americans don't want to do either one of those things. And she goes on to say, we kind of do want, however, the universe to hold our hand without bossing us around too much. Put differently, we kind of want God to hold our hands, just don't boss me around. We would like God to help us when we have needs and when we have wants and when we have fears. Don't tell me how to live my life. I haven't heard a better summary of a thousand conversations that I've had before in my ministry, I don't think, than this. It's brilliant. Do you want God to hold your hand but not tell you how to live? Does he only get to be the Savior or does he get to be the Savior and the Lord because it's an all-or-nothing proposition? The kingdom is an all-or-nothing kind of proposition. Okay, that's the first application point. Second application point, following Christ is expensive and it's totally worth it. Value is a super interesting thing because there's aspects of value that are relative, and there's aspects of value that are not. There's objective value, and there is subjective value. Let me give you a quick illustration of what I mean by that. Uh, some of you have collections. You might have a collection of something that you really particularly like in life. I collect one thing, one thing that I've held on to my entire life. And uh, it is these professional wrestling action figures from the late 80s and early 90s made by Hasbro. So when I was a little kid, and I couldn't, like, I, I, didn't, I didn't have an allowance, I didn't work, I didn't have much money, I couldn't afford, so like any scrimpings that I had from any sort of whatever, returning uh, pop bottles in Michigan, you got 10 cents for. So I do that kind of stuff, and I would buy these little things. And um, it's indefensible. Like, there's no good explanation for... It's. I mean, it's embarrassing. And this is much a confession as it is anything, but you know, for whatever reason, they're valuable to me. Like I have this massive like collection and display cases and lights and stuff like at home and I have all, and, and like once a week I'm on eBay kind of checking to see for anything that I haven't gotten before and there are there's several of them that are worth like thousands of dollars that I will never own and I'm at peace with that. But that kind of, you would say, I don't even want that kind of plastic junk in my house. But to me, but to me, there's subjective value. That's different than if I were holding in front of you like a giant diamond. See, a, a diamond is not valuable because collectively as a society we have said, oh yeah, those things are worth something. A diamond is valuable because uh, it is the single hardest occurring natural substance that exists on the planet, and there's a lot of utility in that. You can use that for a lot of very important things. See, so that has objective value. When you understand subjective and objective value, it it becomes very interesting when you ask questions in life, like, for instance, is a thousand dollars a lot of money? If you're talking about something like an action figure, yeah, probably that's a lot of money. If you're talking about a really large diamond, You know, it's one of those things that if you saw me holding an enormous diamond and I said, you can have this for $1,000, some of you are completely broke and don't have any money and owe money, but you'd somehow go and make some phone calls and you'd get $1,000 and purchase this thing from me, right? Because you understand it has objective value. It has worth that way. Now, here's how this intersects with your faith. Jesus Christ paid for eternal life for you he laid down his life, poured out his blood, bought salvation. The Bible uses economic terms constantly to get you to think in terms of value. And now you think, okay, what is that worth? It also, interestingly, it means that there is a, in some respects, a cost attached. Following Jesus Christ requires you to pick up a cross and follow him. What happens on crosses? Sacrifices. You're probably then, as a follower of Jesus Christ, in your life, you're going to have to sacrifice some time, you're probably going to sacrifice some money, you might have to sacrifice some dear relationships, and you will have to sacrifice your ego. The question then is, is it worth it? See? To the degree that you see the life-altering beauty that is grace, to the degree that you see what eternal perfection in paradise looks like, to the degree that you see the wonder that is God and what he's given to you, it's totally worth it. It's always, always worth it. If you're not sure, or maybe a better way of putting this is if you've lived your life throughout your life as a Christian and you say, yeah, it hasn't really actually cost me all all that much of anything. I can't tell that it's cost me anything. Keep digging. Like, you got to keep digging to find the beauty. Third point, so this kingdom is an all-or-nothing proposition. Following Christ is expensive and it's worth it. And finally, spiritual treasure is found in hidden places. God hid the work of salvation in a very non-impressive, very normal-looking carpenter from Nazareth. God hid eternal truths in a very unimpressive looking book that doesn't get opened all that much on earth called the Bible. God hid a portal to salvation in a baptismal font. God hid an entire wedding banquet and divine affirmation in unleavened bread and common wine. God has this really interesting tendency of hiding ultimately infinitely important things in what look like very ordinary fields. This not only means that you and I will one day become creatures that are unimaginably and non-recognizably good, for the sake of Jesus. But it also means that in this life, everything and every experience and every person, especially every person, because they're created in the image of God, they have incalculable value embedded in them by God. But at first glance, it's very hard to see. In part because pride blinds us to seeing the value that God sees. And practically, what that might mean in life is, let me give you an example. The next time somebody with absolutely atrocious breath and uh, really unfashionable clothes comes and talks to you this far from your face and they complain to you about stuff or they tell you about people you don't know and things that you don't like all that much, you know what you have to remind yourself? In the not-too-distant future, this person is going to be more attractive than the most beautiful person on this planet because of Christ. You have to see that value. When your kid Uh, either in your classroom or your own child, is obstinate and selfish and defiant and says crazy things like, you don't love me, you have to remind yourself that that child in Christ in the not-too-distant future is going to be more efficient, more thoughtful, more productive than anyone that you currently know. You know that's true because spiritual treasure is found in hidden places, so start finding in others the value that God already sees in us right now. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, you who owns everything, spent everything to pay for our sins so that we could live together happily ever after, in our brief time here on this planet, help us to value what you value and be willing to sacrifice everything and leave everything to worship you. May it glorify your holy name. Amen.